AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for September 20th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today I'm joined here with Joe Harden. Welcome, Joe. Hi. Glad to have you back. Yeah, and for folks that aren't familiar, you know, Joe is actually leads the engineering team that helps to uh, develop our threat analysis platform. And so, um, it's good that you have insights be from developing the platform, but also into the uh, security activities that need to be protected. Right, we try to look at it from both angles. Absolutely. And we have online John Markley. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me, Brian. And uh, John, you know, I, I think it's been some while, some time since we've uh, sort of introduced your role. You're involved in, I think, predominantly uh, analyzing the activities that might impact uh, mo mobile devices. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. Mobile endpoint security is what uh, we, we call my role, and it's really just looking at threats and vulnerabilities associated with those uh, handsets we all know and love. All right, and uh, thank you for being here today. We'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, advancements in mobility as well as some of the challenges, I'm sure. I'm Brian Rexrode, and so let's get into the program. Uh, first of all, John, your opportunity here, I guess, uh, you know, everybody's kind of uh, downloading the new Apple iOS 10. And I know my daughter was pretty excited because you get to have animated emojis, but I don't <laughs> think that's the key feature of this, uh, this release. Can you tell us a little about it? Sure, yes. St stickers are really exciting for a lot of people. I, I'm not quite sure why. I guess I'm in the wrong generation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the um, Apple, you know, of course, had their announcement uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, they talked about their new you know, devices coming out, like the iPhone 7, mm -hmm. the 7 Plus, and uh, you know, a number of other things. And one of the things that we've been expecting for some time is a new Apple iOS release, this uh, version 10. So, yeah, they, they finally got it uh, uh, published and, and distributed, and it, it was available for update. I just got to mention that from a security perspective, that 10 release had a number of things, um, including uh, the updated patches for the, uh, the Pegasus Trident vulnerability mm -hmm. um, that was fixed in 9.3.5. So they, they did push that out to and get you all updated with that for the 10.01 release. Now tell us a, a, a little bit about the Pegasus this was the yeah this this was the issue I'm, I'm sure it was covered uh, in previous programs you know but it, it was essentially that there was a, a, a reporter who had indicated that uh, you know somebody had pushed him an SMS push a, a text and he said when he if he were to click on that then he would get his device uh, what they call quasi rooted mm -hmm. so it, it actually put some malware on there and then it could actually do do a little spying on his device. Yeah, so that was a, a case where I think it, it had to do with a WebKit vulnerability or something along those lines. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. There were three. There were three actually three zero-day vulnerabilities that were kind of linked together. One was a JavaScript, one was a Safari, and one was uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. One was actually a, a rooting full type mm -hmm. vulnerability, and those three vulnerabilities in a sequence was what would have compromised his device if he had gone through with it. Mm -hmm. So that was patched in iOS 9.3 something, 3.5, right. And, uh, and also uh, is included as a, as a patch, or basically as a part of the iOS 10 release, correct? 
Correct. So as soon as you loaded 10, you immediately jumped to 10.01, which had the final part of that patch. All right, very good. So it's good to know that the uh, serious vulnerabilities are patched and we're, we're moving on. Okay, yeah. very good. All right, thanks for the update, John. And uh, Joe, let's go to you. And, uh, you know, it, there's a, a, a lot of activity around smart cities. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of interest in being able to make our cities more efficient, make it possible to be able to move around our cities more efficiently. So right. it's a real opportunity for cities to take advantage of some of the new technologies that we have. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's also a potential for vulnerability and exploits. So this uh, story I picked up on is from the Secure List, and they basically looked at smart terminals uh, associated with smart cities. So parking meters, bike rental, kiosks, movie mm -hmm. ticket, terminals, even, you know, it's rare, but they even some uh, cities with public restrooms have mm -hmm. smart meters on the public restrooms. So, you know, these are, they're, they're not your average IoT device, but they have some of the same characteristics. They're always on. Uh, they handle user and payment data, which is mm -hmm. sensitive. Um, they're always connected to each other and to the internet and, you know, kind of back home dial home for uh, transactions. Mm -hmm. um, but really these are PCs with touchscreens. Mm -hmm. So they're, um, you know, they have a lot of the same uh, potential for vulnerability. Uh, the difference really is that they're, they're basically in full screen mode all the time. So the, the story sort of went through how uh, a potential hacker or exploit, someone trying to exploit these devices could compromise them by mm -hmm. getting out of full screen Trying mode. Trying to escape out of the full screen mode, get exactly. into Windows mode, maybe put, put up a shell and be able to start. Yeah, either a keyboard, the you know uh, help window, command lines, mm -hmm. shell, like you said. But the first method they call is tap fuzzing, which uh, is basically you, you tap and hold on different parts of the screen, usually the corners, mm -hmm. and try to uh, sort of force the terminal to exit full screen mode and get access to the keyboard or the command line. Another method was is data fuzzing. Basically it's, you know, entering, you know, inappropriate, incorrect strings into the input forms. Mm -hmm. And that has potentially the same ability to get to a control panel or a keyboard. Um, also sometimes there's external links that you can get to from like a help menu. Uh, there was a mention of, of one of the systems you could actually get out to Facebook. And then once you're external, it, you know, bring up a web browser, then you can do anything from there. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of, of tactics. Uh, I think one thing we talked about that's important to, to mention here is that these aren't, while they have a lot of the characteristics of IoT devices, there should be a layer of oversight and control on these smart cities. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're being implemented at the city level or at some sort of entity, and, you know, there should be some security layer on top. So mm -hmm. it's not really personal. These aren't personal devices. It's a, either it's a bike rental company or mm -hmm. the city municipal parking authority. You know, there should be some, some entity controlling security on these mm -hmm. devices. So, you know, it does provide an opportunity for some fixes on these things that we would hope to see, you know, some controls over the ability to, to you know, lock down these devices. Mm -hmm. so. so this isn't necessarily saying that there are existing vulnerabilities in deployed stuff. It's a case where these are things that could happen and, and may in fact exist in some, you know, example tests that they've done. Right, and they may have been in beta or yeah. pre-release where the, you know, someone got to look at mm -hmm. them. So you're right, it's, it's not necessarily existing, you mm -hmm. know, 
issues with these. Yeah. But it's, a, it's, a, it's good to point out, I guess there are two aspects here. One is that, you know, cities that are involved in doing automation in the city systems really need to be thinking about the security aspects. Absolutely. And it's not just the network security, it's the user interface security. Right. And the, uh, as you pointed out, these are, you know, computers with a specialized interface and you need right. to be able to make sure that control of that interface is, uh, is well tested. And then I think the other aspect is, and, and you know, of course, cities have the opportunity to uh, uh, solicit services right. to help with that, to be able to, to put together the packages for them. And I, I would say uh, perhaps the other sort of angle on this, this isn't necessarily a smart city specific thing. Right. It's really devices are being, you know, take a look at registers associated with, uh, with retail outlets. Those are again PCs, they have a specialized interface. If yep. there is any chance that that right, interface is unattended, it yeah. is unattended and somebody else might have the opportunity to do something with that without, you know, that, that you don't trust, then there would be this similar kind of concern. You know, I think that's one of the uh, immutable, uh, I've forgotten, uh, immutable uh, uh, security principles. I've forgotten the, the exact name of it, but Microsoft had a thing that basically if you allow somebody access to your computer, um, then they own that computer. Right. This is not quite that because yeah. presumably the computer is in a protected enclosure you're only granting access to the things that you trust. It's right. important. And while that you it have is internet in. access, like you said, presumably it's controlled access, mm -hmm. and you know there's some level of oversight as to what these devices can actually mm -hmm. get to. So ATMs would fit into the same category. And in fact, um, you know they probably have some pretty robust testing well, around we've, that. We've because seen I can plenty imagine. of exploits on ATMs, haven't we? Uh, but they've been they've also been pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pretty well uh, put together is, you know, uh, Brian Krebs probably has the best inventory uh -huh. of articles on that topic for anybody yeah. that's interested, but this really kind of fits in that same category that is, if you're going to have an unattended kiosk, and I think that's really sort of the theme here, any unattended kiosk where, uh, you know, perhaps malicious actors might be trying to access the interface, uh, we'll have to be you know, paying attention to what kinds of things they might want to do. And, you know, we didn't even get into the notion of physically trying to uh, get into these places. Maybe they'll just poke a hole through the screen and reach in yeah. there and do something. So. Yeah, the <laughs> well, how, many these, how many of these devices have USB ports in the side of them too, right? Right, right. <laughs> absolutely. So this is, I, I think this article brings to light of some very important considerations. Yeah, that, we'll probably uh, see more on beyond. smart cities moving forward, so. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thanks for bringing that. So, John, let's go to you, and I think uh, you have a quiz for us to, uh, to grapple with. So you usually have a quiz of some kind. This, this one's a little easier or harder, depending upon how, you, you know, how, how well your memory is. Mm -hmm. One of the things I got to thinking about as a quiz is, is we use a lot of uh, acronyms in normal conversation, especially in the cybersecurity world, and usually we choose acronyms that we can speak you know, as words, but not necessarily to always understand where do those acronyms come from? You know, what do they really mean? So I thought, okay, I'll give you a, give a little bit of acronyms that I know I see almost every day, you know, and, and let's, let's, let's see, you know, let's see how well we do. I think you guys will get this pretty easy, but if you don't, then I'm sorry, I, I stumped you. <laughs> I didn't mean to make you look foolish. Anyway, uh, three DES or triple DES is the first one. This one I think will be easy. Uh, a triple data encryption algorithm, 
or B, three distinct encrypted sequences? What do you think, Joe? Uh, I think B, three distinct encryption sequences. Yeah. You know what? I think both of these are wrong. Oh, they're both wrong. <laughs> well, you know, if it were actually three DEA, mm. that might fit. But DEA is already taken by the Drug Enforcement Agency. So to disambiguate the, the uh, acronyms here, I think 3DES is really triple data encryption standard. Ah. Correct. Uh. It, it's a little bit of a trick. Just The, the first one is probably closer because 3DEA is actually what a lot of people call triple DES. Yeah. Oh, really? But it doesn't say, you know, you know doesn't trip off the tongue, right? Right. <laughs> so uh, perhaps what is uh, uh, the sort of the little trick here is each of those encryption steps would have a unique key or to right, right. basically put it together. It's one long key. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, I believe that the the middle one that is the first encryption, I think the second one actually is a decryption, and then the third is an encryption. Is that consistent with your understanding, John? I think that's, that sounds right to me too, yeah. Brian. I'm not, I'm not much of an, you know, I'm not a cryptographer real well, but that does sound very, very familiar yeah, to me. Yeah, it's a little well. counterintuitive. I think it's just to, to give it a little bit of variation in the activity. So, all right. How about the next so, one? So here, give John? me the second. The second. The second one. Second one. MD5 uh, is either A methodized decryption fifth version or B message digest fifth version. What do you think, Joe? I don't know. I got the first one wrong. I'm gonna <laughs> keep quiet on this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I happen to know that MD5 isn't used for decryption. It's used for creating uh, basically a signature, um, and so uh, it's basically taking a bunch of data and digesting it down to, uh, I think it's a 60, is it a 64? I guess it's a 128. 128, uh, bits, yeah. Yeah, bit sequence at this point. So uh, it's really just to create something that's, you know, you can do it forward. You can take a piece of data and generate an MD5 signature. It's really, really hard to take an MD5 signature and figure out what data is needed to, to create that signature. Like so, really, really hard. So B? It's B, yes. Yes, B. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right well, well, maybe maybe these will be a little easier. We'll go a little faster. What, did it uh, sound like I was uh, trying a. to avoid answering the question <laughs> yeah. there? <laughs> All right. Here's one for you. Chap a, challenge handshake uh, authentication protocol, or B, challenge access protocol? Uh, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's got to be challenge access pr protocol. Uh, no, it's not. Oh, really? So, <laughs> really? shame no. on me. I should know the answer to this. So, t tell us a little more about it, John. So, so you, you have, you know, if you think back to the old standards of networking to do, it's kind of an encryption kind of takeoff still, but you have CHAP and PAP, mm -hmm. you know, uh, PAP, I think it's proxy authentication or authentication protocol. So, you have, you have these mechanisms that allow the, uh, you know, uh, trusted relationship between two points on a network. And CHAP is one of those, especially like in a VPN world or an IPsec type world. Mm -hmm. Very good. You know, and, and by the way, for our viewing audience here, John gives us the questions. He doesn't give us the answers ahead <laughs> yeah. of time. And uh, b by definition, we're really not allowed to research it. So, uh, you know, it would be pretty easy to figure this out if we did a look up on it. But um, this is real life. The goal is to embarrass <laughs> us, I think. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm stumping you more than I thought I would. Okay, that's good. Okay. Um, that's good. All right, radius. radius. 
radius maybe. Here we get networking. Uh, a, remote authentication dial-in user service, or B, restricted access denial-in usage service. Uh, I think radius is remote authentication from what I remember, so that's, yeah. I would go with A on this one. Yeah, I would tend to go with A as well. We get something about de denial yeah, and usage doesn't service. Right. Just doesn't sound like the, but, the, what you're looking for. Here. And then here it comes, right? <laughs> What's the correct answer? You got it right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yay! You know, it's it's, no, it is, you know, it? It, it's kind of funny that uh, we still use. I guess we, you know, we still say dial the phone. Yeah. And you know, it, it's uh, even though. I doubt that Radius is used in any kind of a dial-in service these days, but it's, uh, you know, it should be truncated. It should be, uh, you know, remote authentication access or something like that. <laughs> so, alrighty. So, uh, next question here. Well, last two, we've got to get mobile. I am a mobile guy, right? So I got to give you two, two mobile ones. Um, we use these now. These I, I hear a lot. So these are these are two ones that uh, you know certainly I don't expect everybody to know, but I know in my day to day I use it a lot. Uh, Sim uh, A service into mobile, or B subscriber identity module. Mm, I like B on this one. Subscriber like, identity module. Yeah, I like B as well because it kind of can't comes as a little module. Yeah, and right. you jam it in the device. Bingo. Right. Bingo. Nice. Yeah. Yep, bingo, bingo. So, and that's exactly right. You think about a SIM chip that goes in your phone. That's what a, that's what SIM actually stands for. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. And the the, la the last one maybe a little tricky. Emsi, uh, which you know we talk about uh, lately. You know, with some of the some of the security stuff for uh, you know our people are going to LTE over two G because of concerns over uh, eavesdropping and whatnot. We see we use the word Emsi a lot. And so a uh, international mobile subscriber identity. Or B, internal mobility sequencing interface. Is it international, Brian? I don't think it's international, is it? Wouldn't it be more internal? What do you think? Well, I'm a little biased here. You know this one. <laughs> it is definitely internal. Yeah. But I think the key word here is sequencing. Mm. I'm not sure where the sequencing would come from. You know, if, it, if there were actually a notion of uh, rolling. Oh, you're right. It's more of, yeah. And it's more of an identity than an interface, too. And, All right, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll go with you then. A. Yeah. I tend to think of MZ as sort of a MAC address for mobile devices. Ah. And it is unique internationally because if you want to be able to provide roaming services internationally, you want to be able to uniquely identify devices internationally. So I'm going to go with international mobile subscriber identity. And you, you got it right, guys. And in and, and a way you said it, Brian, is exactly correct. You want to think of MZ like you would do a MAC address on an Ethernet card. Mm -hmm. Unique. It is identifier. Um, and it is what says on the SIM, you know, it's associated with your phone. It's, it's, it's in that combination between SIM and the MZ that's actually in the, uh, in the device. You have a very strong sense of identity in that device that's unique to you. And, mm -hmm. and so when we talk about, um, you know, uh, falsifying or trying to masquerade as somebody these are the things that you have to you have to you have to do mm -hmm. well and in fact i think it, it, as mac addresses are assigned to manufacturers i think blocks of uh mcs are are assigned to manufacturers as well is that correct that's absolutely correct yeah. you, you can you can tell if you know enough about something you could tell who made that mm -hmm. device by yeah. the mc perhaps well, not the specific model number but you can certainly identify who manufactured it, right? 
Cool. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, quiz. You know, that's always, uh, I think, um, the, the diversity of what you bring to the table here, John, I think is part of really what makes that quiz valuable is that uh, we get to uh, explore some new areas on the program of doing that. So let's take a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, first and foremost on the list is, uh, you know, our top 10 most probed ports. That's, uh, you know, obviously a standard part of the program. This is from yesterday, September 19th, 2016. We show a really large proportion of activity on port 23 TCP. We're gonna take a little closer look at that. It's followed by port 22 TCP. We're not gonna take a closer look at that one, however. I think that's kind of in on par with what we've been seeing pretty much recently. 3389 TCP after that, 43 TCP, 1911. You know, I think that's a little bit higher than we typically see in terms of the number of probes, but it generally is associated with researchers uh, doing that probing activity. Generally, what I would put in the category of someone innocuous. Port 80 TCP, you know, 443 and port 80 are often getting probed. In fact, there's a reasonable amount of botnet activity doing the probing on, the, on anything web. As you might expect, looking for vulnerabilities, SQL injection attacks, cross-site scripting attacks, there are opportunities for that, that is. And then uh, we have 53.4.13, that's the, uh, the backdoor associated with Netis home routers, uh, building botnet activity around that. And then followed by port 21 TCP. We are going to take a look at that one because, actually not in terms of probes, but in terms of the number of sources a little bit later on. Um, a little bit of interesting information on that one. And then followed by port 53 UDP that's uh, probing around for uh, DNS servers. And then looking at the uh, most sources doing the probing, this one, I, I, I thought we had seen the uh, top of it before, but it keeps going up and up. So port 23 taking up about 80% of the pie chart here. That's really significant, and I think this is a new record, at least from what I have seen. I haven't actually gone through all the data to figure it out, but through the course of an entire day on aggregate, we saw in excess of 1.6 million unique addresses, is actually closer to 1.7 million unique addresses, just probing on port 23. So a significant amount of activity there, followed by a mere sliver in the pie on port 2323 TCP, but we are going to take a little closer look at that one as well uh, because it has an interesting uh, geographic demographic so associated with it. Is that a, that's not even redundant, but it sounds like a really redundant <laughs> phrase geographic demographic. Uh, followed by uh, 445 TCP, uh, we have a few um, uh, ICMP ports that are being probed there. 80 TCP is in the mix, and as I mentioned earlier, we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at port 21 TCP associated with activity. And I think in last week's report, they reported on uh, 4028 TCP, which uh, was showing some uh, uh, somewhat anomalous, uh, anomalous activity. So taking a look at port 23, this is looking at the last year of activity. It helped to provide a little bit of perspective. Now keep in mind, even though when we look at a full year ago, we still had a significant amount of probing activity. That is, you know, this uh, activity to recruit new devices, predominantly these uh, closed circuit television uh, DVRs into these botnets that's been going on for more than a year now. But it really has kicked up over the last six months or so and continues to go upward. Again, seeing new records in terms of the number of probes in a given hour, as well as the number of sources in a given hour, up on the order about clo really close, just short of 450,000 unique sources in an hour. And as we said earlier, 1.6, actually 
closer to 1.7 million unique sources in a given day. And Joe, I think you had just seen an article where they were talking about one million devices yeah. in this botnet, and it's easily approaching twice that many. At well, this one point. million just in that one family, the Bashlight family that's right. doing mostly DDoS. Well, and, and this is in fact, I think, really a, a big part of that family that is, you see the dips in the graph here. Yeah. As those dips go down, that's a strong indication that it's really just one botnet that's associated with those dips in activity. Otherwise, it would kind of level itself okay. out. So uh, it is likely yeah, that family of botnets. It has several names associated right. with it. There are lots of articles that have been coming out recently. And as you pointed out, they are used predominantly for denial of service attacks. Right. And I think we're going to have uh, some additional discussion, discussion about that. Uh, a little bit later okay. uh, in the next program. Uh, next item here is scan probes and sources on port 2323 TCP. And I think this was first reported last week when it sort of popped up on our radar. Uh, we're just showing 30 days of data here. And it is, again, lots of IoT devices that are participating in this activity. And you know, I think it's interesting, probably was pointed out last week, that uh, you can see that there was some probing activity that took place, a couple of events. And this is fairly typical when we see a new port that's being probed. That is, we don't see any increase in the number of sources. So it's just one or two sources. They go out and probe, see yeah. if there are any hits, and decide whether or not they want to do it on a more grand scale. And uh, certainly what's happened here is that they uh, basically employed a botnet used a lot of source addresses to create lots more probes on a broader scale, and uh, have uh, that has you know sort of tapered down significantly since we saw that uh, start. But the other thing I sort of wanted to point out is that since the report last week, I think um, we had reported on the order of, I'm gonna say around 50,000 sources. Uh, it's actually, perhaps it was a little bit less than that. Uh, but that did spike up significantly since then and uh, since it's tapered off. So I don't think we're done with this one. Apparently there are some hits on these devices and they're being recruited into uh, perhaps a different botnet, perhaps part of the botnet that we were just talking about. Uh, it's not clear at this point. Similar types of devices that we're seeing. The other thing I wanted to share with you on this one is the uh, geographic heat map associated with this. Obviously, we're looking on the order of about 7,000 unique devices that have been doing this scanning activity. And uh, we see really heavy activity in about the center of Europe here, really ha heavy activity in uh, Eastern China, in Vietnam, the Philippines, really heavy activity in South America, not so much from the United States. I mean, there are some certainly in the United States, but relatively speaking, you know, if you look at the computer population, the technology population, you tend to see really heavy density in the United States, comparatively speaking. This is the exact opposite. I don't think that happened by accident. I think there's something uh, the, that's driving this. For some reason, they chose to perform the probing activity from outside the United States. I don't know if that probing activity was directed more toward the United States or if uh, there were other things in mind. But nevertheless, uh, that is what it looks like geographically. And the last item I wanted to share with you here today is uh, an increase in the number of bytes on port 16393 UDP. This one, you know, uh, just doing a lot of a little bit of research, there was actually an Apple support article that indicates that if you want to operate FaceTime through a firewall, you need to open certain ports and port 16393 
is the, basically the beginning of a range of ports that I presume are dynamically assigned for uh, FaceTime sessions. So I suspect that this is associated with FaceTime. Uh, we're seeing an increase in activity, uh, perhaps not by coincidence. Uh, this activity started to increase right around September 14th. Uh, and John, I think you had indicated that um, iOS 10, Apple iOS, iOS 10 was um, just released on September 13th. Is that correct? That, that is correct. So that's certainly uh, a very uh, non-coincidental yeah. looking graph. So there. the good news behind this is this appears to be innocuous activity. I don't, it's a very widely distributed. It doesn't have the indicators uh, of malicious activity. So uh, if you do see an increase of this type on your network, I wouldn't be too worried about it. It may be, in fact just be associated with FaceTime activity. I apologize, that was not the last item. <laughs> uh, one last item here, sources on port 21 TCP that's associated with FTP, that's actually the control channel for FTP, so it'd be the uh, login prompt for doing the, uh, an FTP session. Looking at 30 days here, and we did see an increase in the number of sources that are probing on this port. So it went from you know a typical average of about 500 sources doing that probing, jumped up closer to uh, you know peaking out around 3,000 sources. So it's not a huge botnet, but certainly an increase in the amount of activity. And it does indicate botnet because of the uh, number of sources that are participating here. Generally speaking, you know, if somebody were doing research, they might have 100 servers. I doubt that they would have a, a 3,000 servers. So, so I would treat this as more highly suspect, if not uh, malicious in nature. And if you have FTP servers out there, there was actually recently an article um, describing how a number of um, FTP servers are not very well secured, and um, somebody had done some research and uh, was able to compromise a number of them, even some that were associated with, uh, with the government. So that's something that you'll want to be paying attention to to uh, help make sure um, that your FTP servers, if you have any, are well protected. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at ATT Threat Track at list.att.com, and you can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as in an audio podcast on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Joe, and thank you, John, for joining today. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.